0: Hey, Bankless Nation. This is panel time on Bankless. The panel is an opportunity to deep dive into a topic with a number of guests who are experts in the space. And today, we're talking about DAOs. This is how to DAO. And we've got a fantastic group of panelists for you where we're going to have this conversation. David, why don't you give us a preview? Yeah, there's a number of conversations to have about DAOs, about like are they really all that
1: fundamentally different? What rules about organizations have changed now that we are in the DAO world? And also, what rules are actually exactly the same? What does it mean to have a good DAO? And do all DAOs follow the same rules about what it means to have a good DAO? What are all the same problems that DAOs are, ch- are faced with? And what problems do only some DAOs have? There's a lot of things to unpack here because collectively, as an industry, we are all learning how to DAO. Uh, and so we've brought on some of the best leaders who have some of the uh, the most experience with DOWing to get their perspectives as to how to DOW.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we've got Kane Warwick, Cooper Turley and Trake from the Y Earn Protocol. We're going to be talking to all of them. And we really think that DOWs are um, the new opportunity to front run in crypto. There's a massive amount of opportunity. This is really how crypto is coordinating human capital as well as, as uh, you know, asset capital, DAOs will replace companies one day. We firmly believe this. Do you remember our Josh Rosenthal episode where he talked about the crypto Medici? Uh, well, we are the new crypto Medici. And uh, joining a DAO is one way to dive deeper down this, this rabbit hole. You will not regret it. Speaking of which, DAO opportunities. Um, our friends at Tracer DAO have just launched a DAO. They're working on a DeFi Perpetuals product, pretty exciting stuff. They're looking right now for governors and contributors. So if you're interested in that, join their discord, get involved. We'll include a link in the show notes. Guys, we will be right back with our panelists. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Living a bankless
1: life requires taking control of your own private keys, not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallets, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite dApps all in one place, Ledger is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab your Ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your dApps all in one place. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants Program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a UniGrant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project.
0: Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. All right, guys. We are back. This is the How to DAO panel. Really excited to introduce our three guests to you. The first is Kane Warwick. He's the f- founder and benevolent prefrontal cortex of Synthetics. Back on Synthetics these days. Kane, how you doing? Doing really well. Yeah, uh,
2: it's been uh, it's been a good couple of weeks. Just got back from our uh, Western Hemisphere offsite where I met uh, about fifteen of the core contributors for the first time. So that was really cool.
0: Hey, hey, people in a DAO actually meet in person. Good to know. Uh, Cooper Turley, he leads crypto strategy at Audius, uh, governance at Friends with Benefits, another DAO, also an advisor to the Variant Fund. They are big into DAOs and the creator economy as well. And he's a general DAO operator. I I, I feel like he's in every DAO uh, I've ever seen or been a part of, including uh, Pleaser, C-Club, Forefront, Fingerprints, probably some other DAOs we don't yet know about coming in the future. Cooper, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I'm excited to dive into it. I think this is a hot topic and you've got some of the best on the call today. So thank you for having me. I think it's the hottest topic. And the reason I say that is because like we're front running everybody else right now. It's kind of, I think you said this last time we were on together, Cooper, is like where NFTs were at this time last year. Uh, lastly, we have Trake. He is a contributor at Wiren, uh, LexPunk, and Coordinate, really cool infrastructure for decentralized compensation servicing DAOs too. Trake,
3: how are you doing? Doing great, man, and I'm yeah also psyched to be here and talking about this amazing stuff with you guys.
0: Man, we are psyched to have you on. Psyched to be in crypto at this time. So we're gonna dive right into some DAO topics. You guys ready? Let's do this. Yes. All right. You know, I'm gonna start with this. Uh, play the devil's advocate because, like, you know, why not? Let's let's start with the skepticism first. So the skeptic says, even the skeptic in me, quite honestly. Are DAOs really that fundamentally different from, say, a traditional LLC? Maybe it's just like a, an LLC or a corporation without a nation-state registration, but isn't it fundamentally sort of the th- same thing? And if so, why are DAOs even special at all? Why are we having this panel? Why are we excited about DAOs if that's all they are? Why don't we start with you, Kane? What's your take?
2: So yes and no. Right? Like, yes, uh, you know, corporate governance is a coordination mechanism. It's just a really shitty one compared to DAOs. And so, you know, when you look at what a DAO enables, uh, you have the ability to kind of transcend uh, any one regulatory jurisdiction or like any legal structure. You don't need to be domiciled in a particular place, Um, but the, the DAO itself is kind of the arbiter of, uh, of the rules, as opposed to, you know, needing to kind of, uh, resort to some external, uh, court of law or, you know, legal jurisdiction. And that's a really powerful, uh, mechanism that, you know, uh, DAOs enable is this kind of self-contained coordination mechanism that, um, is, you know, autonomous, right. Uh, it's, it's outside of, uh, you know, any, any particular, uh, any particular place. And I think that's powerful. And I think that's why we're seeing people from all over the world come together to form these DAOs uh, in a way that you, you couldn't probably do certainly uh, so easily with corporate governance.
0: Okay. So Kane making the point that DAOs are super national. They're outside of any single nation state jurisdiction. Cooper, what do you think about that? Is this still the same like corporate Ooh. governance, just in a super national structures or something more here? I think that it's a lot more fluid.
4: You know, the biggest thing I'd call out is there's no team and user dynamic. You know, team and community are one and the same. And what that does, is it allows for people to come in in a much more free-flowing manner. So with the DAO, you don't need to worry about going through an HR process to be hired to a multi-year contract with a vesting schedule. You can jump in and start contributing today. I think that ethos to allow people to come in and contribute as they see fit, it opens a design space for a lot more collaboration and also allows there to be a lot more ownership in that project. And so beyond the legal structure, I would say the precedent behind working for a DAO has a lot more ownership involved with it. And as a result, you see people coming in and doing things in a much more fluid manner that we haven't really seen outside of like a cooperative or a freelance model, which I'd say is fundamentally different from the ways that DAOs work today.
0: So, Trey, it's this idea that we've got this super, super national entity exists outside of the nation state. This also permissionless. Anyone can join. Anyone can contribute. Everyone has sort of a vested interest in what goes on. Uh, what would you add to this, uh, this question then, Trey?
3: Yeah, I would say it's part of a developmental process in the collective consciousness. You, know, you can look back. They're, they're not fundamentally different than former forms of human organization, but they are fundamentally better, and they're kind of breathtakingly better in so many ways just as like the, the capabilities of a tribe or a religion or a nation or an incorporation, now you have a DAO and each one of these different shapes of organization emerges from different financial, legal theories, different theories of personhood. Um, and on top of blockchain, you know, beyond nations out in cyberspace where anybody can be whoever they want and they're permissionless and open, uh, DAOs are just kind of radically different and, and better
0: one thing that's striking to me Tracy as i'm looking at your like avatar right like i see uh you know I, I don't see a person here right and so this is the idea that you're getting at of kind of pseudo anonymous contribution as well you could never contribute to a company in this way, there are probably few organizations we could contribute in this way. But like a DAO is, is 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 much more meritocratic. You don't you don't have to have a nation state ID in order to contribute. And here you are uh, contributing as a, <laughs> uh, what, what what would you call your insignia <laughs> here, Drake?
3: Well, here I am a kind of shaman dinosaur, which is <laughs> actually go. pretty close to what I am. <laughs> so very what, cool.
1: One question that always arises with me and DAOs is is in the name DAO is the word decentralized. But there's hasn't really changed any sort of role with regards to leadership or has there? And so my first question, my question on this is maybe to to you, Kane, as the the founder of Synthetix and which has then morphed into Synthetix DAO. How is leadership in DAOs the same as previous organizational schemes or how is it totally different?
2: Yeah, it's it's a topical uh, issue for synthetics. I think um, so. It it's a it's honestly a hard question to answer. Um, I think that uh, there is always a necessity um, when you have a group of people uh, for you know some level of kind of responsibility. Right, diffusion of responsibility is is very dangerous um, when coordinating people, uh, and I think that that's one thing that. We haven't maybe solved yet. Um, like right now, we're we're you know really powered by enthusiasm, right? Um, you know people like uh, Cooper who are in eighty five DAOs and you know just working twenty four seven and and you know uh, just super excited about the space. Um, there does come a time, and I think Synthetics, you know, being four years old or, or you know whatever it is, uh, where people need uh, to be you know put into some kind of leadership role um when it comes to organizing other people right who are going to be doing something uh, but the critical thing i think and the critical difference in a DAO versus even you know the old synthetics open source uh software foundation model is in the foundation there was a person who was the ultimate uh you know uh, controller of that organization right in the synthetics DAO, there is no uh person who sits at the top of the hierarchy right there's a council which is a, a you know, representation of the will of the token holders, but the token holders are you know, tens of thousands of people spread all around the world. And so uh, you have this idea of, there isn't one person who controls the outcomes or decisions or, or whatever of this organization, uh, but there may need to be people who help coordinate the individual humans doing some specific activity. They can't choose what to do, but they can help coordinate uh, what has been chosen by the community,
1: Cooper? As Kane said, you're a part of roughly 85 DAOs. So, how has leadership uh, changed, or how how have different uh, DAOs chosen different leadership models? And what have you seen that has worked out uh, in some of the DAOs that you're a part of?
4: It's a great question. I'd like to clarify. It's actually 87 DAOs. Uh, in- <laughs> <laughs> he I just, hit he, he market, just
0: joined two more, about it, as we as we started this podcast. <laughs> all <David>. all, yeah. <laughs>
4: I mean, I think that framing was really accurate from Kane. You know, I think that um in the early stages of a DAO, obviously someone's gonna play a pretty key role in getting it off the ground. I think that's necessary for it to get started. But what you start to see is that after that first operator is hired to sort of run the day to day, you know, those responsibilities start to get positioned outwards. And I think the more that people are taking key roles in DAOs that are not that specific leader, that's when the conversation around decentralization starts to happen more meaningfully. You know, to me, when I hear that word, I think about what does it mean to have a voice in this project? You know, are my criticisms, thoughts, and feedback actually being heard, or are they being deflected? You know, this is not a support desk where you open a, Zen, like a ticket on Zendesk and then have someone respond to you two weeks later. You know, there's a discord channel where you can talk to the leader in real time and really voice your opinion. And with token-based governance, you know, have a way to show that in a way that actually is meaningful and impactful. You know, and I think that in the, in the world before this, there was never really a structure to voice those opinions very meaningfully. And so to answer your question about how they evolved over time, I think we're still figuring out what a DAO looks like at full decentralization scale. What we are seeing now is that leaders are becoming more comfortable empowering contributors to actually take on meaningful stakes in these projects. And over time, I think that's a really powerful precedent that I don't have to be best friends with Kane to work for his protocol. If I show up and I do meaningful work for a community, the people around me are going to see that and I'm able to own a significant stake in this network.
1: Trake, you've been on the front lines with coordination inside of Yearn and also started building out your own tooling to solve your own problems with regards to coordination in Yearn. How have you seen leadership inside of Yearn grow and develop and what what thoughts do you have on the leadership question with regards to DAOs?
3: Yeah, it's it's a really important question and I really resonate with what both Kane and Cooper said. Um, One important thing, a lot of people think that, you know, in evolved corporations or organizations, Freudian slip there evolved organizations that there should be no hierarchy. Um, and But that's really kind of um, just kind of logically false. I mean, the sun's bigger than the earth, and, you know, like there is hierarchies in the world, like somebody knows more about something than me, that's important. What the problem is around rigid hierarchies, you know, which is kind of by default, what happens in, in a legal corporation, you have to have these kind of rigid structures. In DAOs, what's really important and different is that you don't have to have it, but it doesn't mean that you don't need leadership. You still need leadership. And we really also need to develop new processes, new tooling that can support natural and fluid leadership. Like we say uh, at Yearn and at Coordinate, the leader is the one who knows what to do next, you know, hmm. and you really want to be able to support that type of leadership.
0: That's super cool. The leader is the one who knows what to do next. Very cool. Um, let's talk about this. So I, I feel like DAOs are in the early stages maybe, but they're, they're starting to to enter sort of the, the crypto Zeke guys, the crypto uh, hype cycle, if you will. And I feel like some people think, um, oh yeah, all, all it takes, we'll, we'll we'll take this idea that we have or this model we have, and we'll sprinkle a little DAO on it. It'll just grow and like it'll be successful and it'll flourish and it'll be worth millions and everyone will be uh, excited about it. But we've seen through history, I mean, r- right now it's not the first generation of DAOs, we've seen... Many generations of DAOs, and those of you who've, who've uh, you know been in the space for a while remember like cycles of of previous failures. So I want to ask this question because we've all been a part of DAOs that have failed. We've been part of some that are successful. What is the difference? What's the differentiator between a successful DAO and an unsuccessful DAO? Trake, why don't I, uh, you weigh in on that question?
3: Yeah. So actually, I'm going to coin a term here: the three Ps. We just came up with this today: uh, purpose, principles, and process. And um, it's a nice way to talk about things that we're doing at Yearn now, and have been thinking a lot about. Um, you have to know why you're doing something, and and then you have to know who you are, who you're trying to be, you know, in the organization, what your principles are, and then how you're doing it. And if you're doing those three things in a Dao, um, it's really important. I know some people will kind of don't like the idea of stating principles, because it reminds them too much of like Google's bullshit principles or whatever, right? You don't have to do it in a boomer way. We all have principles, right? Um, And actually most of the DAOs that I'm in, or that I I know, they actually have really strong vision and principles. Just often it's not stated. It's almost like if you state it, you're going to become an old dude. Like (laughs) it's kind of how you hold it. That's the, it changes, it's alive, it reflects the system, but it helps you remember, you know, what you're doing. So yeah, purpose, principles, and process.
0: Can, can I ask about the last one really quick, Drake, in a follow-up? Because I, I feel like there are some DAOs out there that have maybe the, the first two sort of down. They got the principles and they got the purpose, but they fall down on, on the process. And we do need to reinvent processes for this new organizational construct. Do, do you have any insight into successful DAOs from a process perspective? What do they do differently?
3: Yeah. It's super important. Like, um, but also important, you don't want to over-define processes. You know, you don't want to like rigidly structure everything, but you need process. How do you make decisions in a DAO? You know, uh, of course there's coin, coin voting, but there's so many other types of decisions that people need to make. Um, you know, how do you, you know, elect members to the synthetics council? You know, how do you, um, how do you handle, uh, somebody, you know, being an asshole to somebody else. Like there's a lot of types of processes that DAOs need. And it doesn't mean that they have to be the old bad style of business process, by the way, but you still do need process.
0: Yeah, and I wonder how much of these things we can borrow from the old world from different organizational uh, structures, uh, for instance. Cooper, I I wanna turn the same question to you. Uh, I know you've been a part of 87 DAOs. And um, like, so successful ones versus unsuccessful ones. What's, what what are the big differentiators in in your mind? I
4: would say broadly oversimplifying, did it go to zero? Um, It's a yes or no binary question. I would say if people are showing up on a recurring basis to meet and discuss the purpose of that DAO, it's considered successful in my opinion. I think the biggest unlock that we've seen from the first chapter of DAOs is that we now have liquid tokens representing ownership in these communities. You know, in the first chapter of DAOs, you typically had non-transferable shares that represented social capital and some claim on assets. But it was fundamentally different from being able to expand and have an asset that traded on a secondary market. And so now we can use key metrics like token price as a way to sort of gauge sentiment there. But I think success a DAO is actually much more on the human side. You know, if you go into a Discord, if you come to a community call, is that DAO scaling in operations? Is it consistently taking on new work and shipping new things? And if the answer is yes, I would say that that's successful in my mind. And if it clearly doesn't have a recurring contributor base that's coming back to discuss things, then I would say that that basically went to zero and is a failure.
0: So, uh, Kane Cooper is saying it hit the Dow has a pulse still alive, then there that's some measure of, of success here. Let's talk about the, the mega Dows, like the, the ones that are going to like dwarf companies in size and their success. What is it about Kane? Is it like, is it talent? Is it about community is it about better process? Do they, are they, do they have first mover advantage? What do you think are the core things that make a Dow super successful?
2: It, I mean, in my experience, the things that have really uh, enabled DAOs to, to be successful and have continuity is a sense of legitimacy, right? That that the processes um, and, and you know, the, the systems that the DAO uses are legitimate, right? Um, and, you know, this is really important for some of the things that, um, you know, both Cooper and Trek mentioned, like people need to be able to come in and contribute and feel like, you know, there is some, Uh, Meritocratic principles that they're operating on; that it's not just some kind of clique of people that can exclude you or whatever. So they need to be open, um, they need to be transparent, uh, they need to be legitimate. All of the processes that they're using, Um, but I also think that uh, there's another. You know, and this goes for the synthetics community. I think there needs to be a level of uh, kind of buy-in of all the community members that. They're all kind of working towards some shared vision, right? Um, And if you go back to, you know, the bad days of synthetics, there were only like 20 people, Um, but there was a really, you know, a strong sense of like purpose, what we were doing um, and everyone felt like they could contribute. Um, ideas, concepts, work, whatever it was. Um, it was very you know, open, low barrier to entry uh, community. Um, and you know, there was a lot of engagement uh, from you know even back in the foundation days, myself and, and other uh, you know, members of the team with the community. You know, it was a collective effort that we were all working towards. Obviously as we've you know moved more towards a DAO. Um, and deprecated those kind of legacy functions, it's got, that's gotten even more powerful. Um, but I think now today you can turn up in synthetics, you can start contributing, um, and you know, there's, a, there's a real sense of you know, legitimacy of the processes that we've implemented.
1: Trake brought up the word purpose, and, and all three of the uh, panelists used that word in, in their most recent answer. And so I kind of want to dive into the values and visions that we see inside of DAOs. Uh, and I want to start with, with you, Kane, because, you know, synthetics and other, uh, you know, DeFi DAOs like Uniswap or Yearn have a very concrete purpose, right? Like Yearn is to optimize yield. Synthetics is to generate a synthetics asset trading platform. Uh, and then we have DAOs like Bankless DAO, which is a little bit more nebulous in their, their vision, right? Like it's to propagate the bankless meme, the bankless message and bankless infrastructure and, and education, which is you know, not as specific as simply just like you know, maximizing trading volume or synthetics uh, market cap. So, so uh, let, let's start with uh, the, what, what you think is the, the values and visions of synthetics and how that plays a role in maybe DAO membership, DAO organization, DAO coherence. What is overall the role of values and visions for a DAO uh, to succeed?
2: I think within synthetics, the, the kind of, uh, you know, primary uh, uh, you know, guiding factor for us has just been solving hard problems, um, you know, like iteratively experimenting towards a solution to this you know very difficult problem of how do you have a crypto collateralized, uh, you know, uh, network of uh, synthetic assets. Um, and you know, we've had a lot of iteration and a lot of experimentation and not all of it's been successful. Um, But, you know, we've, we've always had this very kind of open minded approach that, you know, we test things and, and, you know, anyone can come in and suggest something that they think would be, you know, a good potential solution. Uh, And so I think that that uh, that kind of overarching principle has allowed us to be very fluid in how we've kind of tackled problems. We, we haven't locked into this is the thing that we do and we only do it this way. And, you know, everything outside of that is kind of, uh, you know, excluded, uh, the solution space is open um, with synthetics. But I think even more broadly outside of, you know, trying to build a synthetic asset uh, platform, more like over time my my sense is that the community is as uh kind of interested in and um, as driven by this idea of uh coordination right and, and actually building a governance framework that is legitimate and you know can allow this to, to operate now the fact that we need to be decentralized for a whole bunch of reasons, Um, you know, uh, is has kind of been a forcing function for us to get this right. Um, But we've started, you know, we started this process, you know, a long time ago, and and it's been a continuous process of moving uh, decision-making more and more into the hands of token holders. Um, So I think that that maybe, you know, Vitalik kind of talked about this, like DGov versus DeFi. In my mind, you know, the DGov part of synthetics is probably more important than the DeFi part of synthetics. Um, You know, in in 20 years time, when we look back, uh, the the experiments that we ran on, um, on governance will probably be far more important for the overall ecosystem than the experiments we ran on synthetic assets.
1: Turning to you, Cooper, Kane is the, uh, you know the like, like we said in the intro, the benevolent prefrontal cortex of one specific DAO, but I think you might be up to 80 DAOs at this point now in, in the call. And so with all these DAOs that you're a part of, how, do, how is values and visions a part, uh, an important component of all these different DAOs? What, what's the general role of values and visions in DAOs?
4: Yeah, so I'd start by saying that uh, most of the DAOs that I am are more social clubs than they are financial protocols. And so I think fundamentally that, you know, view on the way that the DAO is meant to operate changes sort of the focus. You know, I'd say for a lot of the DAOs that I'm in, it's about meeting people online. It's about finding a sense of purpose and community in the way that you spend your time on the internet. And I think when you start to think about values from that perspective, it's less outcome driven. You know, if I can go into a Discord community and meet three people in my local city and make a friendship online, that's kind of the end state that I'm driving forwards towards. And I think that when you start to think about culture as a means for value accrual and for sort of just identity, you start to get into very different situations. And so I'd say a lot of the stuff happening right now around the NFT market with profile pictures, a lot of stuff happening around social clubs like friends with benefits. You notice that there's not sophisticated financial products being built, but when you look under the surface, you notice that people are far more interested in governance because they feel a sense of purpose and ownership over the way that they're contributing. And as you scale that outwards, I think the mission here is to make sure that no matter where you go in the world, any city at any time. You can find someone that has a shared value as you and go and hang out and have a good time, grab a beer, grab a coffee or whatever. And so long as there's, you know, these sort of pockets around the world to meet community members, I think the values of the DAO is simply make friends online. If we can do that well, that's a successful DAO in my book.
1: Trake, take us home on this one. What is the role of values and visions inside of a DAO?
3: Well, it really helps align people's effort and helps uh, unlock their creative energy. You know, so knowing what you're headed towards and how you're going to get there. So, you know, it's an active living discussion at Yearn. Um, Yearn kind of came from chaos and, you know, we're, we're growing all these new organs all the time, but there are principles that matter to the people at Yearn, like action, creativity, innovation, initiative, collaboration, and integrity, you know, like what I find in, in Yearn and in many places in DeFi is that not just trying to make a ton of money and like take over the world you're trying to do something more meaningful you know um and that's i think where a lot of also the organization stuff comes in and i really resonate with kane is saying like when i look at the things that are most exciting to me it's like how we are learning to coordinate and we're doing really hard things you know and doing it you know with no nets where we're we're walking this tightrope and you need incredible trust and incredible uh, integrity and um to coordinate like that.
0: Drake. I want to ask you this question about like Dow size, like David and I have talked about from the earliest uh, stages of, of bankless that um, this whole crypto movement is about um, social scalability, essentially scaling human coordination, right? And we have this hardwired uh, constraint called Dunbar's law or Dunbar's number, which is like inside of our biology and inside of our DNA. And that's, that's the idea that any human being has a hard time managing over 150 personal connections. So I, I'm curious about DAOs as we think about like the size, the optimal size for a DAO. Um, like what is the optimal size for a DAO? Sometimes mm. it seems like DAOs can be very successful early on when you've got a core team dedicated and, and focused, almost like a mini, mini startup, if you will. But then like, can we scale beyond that? Or are DAOs meant to be sort of small, uh, tight-knit teams? What, what's your take on the optimal size for a DAO and, and how, it, uh, how it might scale in the future?
3: Well, I think there's so many different types of things that people will use DAOs to do, you know? Um, and often when we're talking about Dunbar's number or looking at research from like Mark Granovetter or uh, Bill Putnam around weak ties and social cohesion, you know, you're, you're thinking about certain types of activities in certain environments, but in DAOs, there's going to be even every type of activity. Like I could be part of a science fiction book club DAO, right, with tens of thousands of people. And if the decisions they're making is just what book are we reading next, that'll be a pretty effective DAO. You know? But if the, that DAO is trying to do things like create an, inc- an incredibly complicated piece of software, um, with a certain design etc., et cetera, it's going to be hard to do that with so many people. You need a smaller group to do that, or at least you need groups of smaller groups that can coordinate in an effective way. So it really depends on what you're trying to do, but I think we'll see DAOs from one person to billions of people.
0: Kane for, for what Synthetics has done, you guys started as sort of a very small, even like a centralized team. And now it's this decentralized community. Uh, what's your take on a DAO's size and how how that has scaled with synthetics?
2: So just first to go back, you asked a question earlier about like you know, uh, actually uh, uh, there was a question about um, early DAOs, right? And I think one of the issues that we had with the early DAOs is the DAO. Uh, Created some fear in people, you know, to have this like unconstrained thing that was just like deployed, immutable, and you know it could go wrong in all kinds of fun ways. Um, And I think that then a lot of the kind of subsequent DAOs that launched were really just bullshit DAOs, right? Like Synthetics was not a DAO. Maker DAO was not a DAO, right? Just because it had DAO in the name did not mean it was a DAO, right? It was a foundation. Was run by you know one or two people. Uh, we've only, it's only been you know in the last like what three weeks or something that MakerDAO actually became a DAO right um, you know, by by winding up the foundation and kind of uh, you know uh, handing over control um, to you know the the system itself right to token holders. And so I think when we look at you know that evolution from these very centralized entities that were not really DAO like at all to now, the big difference is that we have tools. Um, You know, there's a lot of tools. There's still a lot of tools to be built. And I think that there's a huge open space, uh, you know, a solution space for people to build better DAO tooling. The the project that got me most excited uh, in the early days of Ethereum was Aragon. Right Mm -hmm. now, you know, Aragon obviously blew up spectacularly again, not a DAO. <laughs> so there's something to be said for that as well, right? Like it's it's amazing how these non-DAOs, uh, you know, have such uh, you know interesting coordination failures. Um, but there's there's no question that there's a lot of room for better tooling in the DAO space. Um, you know, things like snapshot, um, safe snap, you know, uh, compound governance module. There's there's definitely stuff out there, but there's a lot more work that needs to happen. Um, But when you've got something like synthetics, I think you are kind of inclined to just roll your own tooling to an extent. Um, And one of the things that I've been pushing for within the community is for us to kind of try and uh, get this tooling a little bit more accessible so that other people can use it. Um, and I think that that's a really big thing that we need to be pushing for all DAOs. If you build something cool, Urine does a really good job with this. Um, you know, as I said, Compound has done you know, some really cool stuff, uh, Balancer, you know, Snapshot. Like, you, it. the onus is on you to get it out there and, and you know, make it accessible for people to use. I think that's really critical. Um, and, you know, it's something that is like, uh, it should be a, a really, you know, uh, important part of not just building your own tooling, but making sure that it's tooling that's accessible to the rest of you know the group of community because that's the only way we can kind of test and experiment and iterate on these things.
0: So so Cooper, how about you want to bring you in on this uh, the same question about DAO size. Like so Je- Jeff Jeff Bezos, I think Amazon has implemented in the past something called like the two pizza rule, where no meeting size should be larger than the amount of people who can eat from like two pizzas. Right. So like, if you run out of slices, your meetings too big, it's the idea. And that's the idea that like large numbers make things inefficient, ineffective, hard to make decisions. Do you think there's an optimal Dow size? I mean, Drake said kind of, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, but what have you seen from your travels?
4: I would say that um, for the core working, working groups of a DAO, anywhere from five to 10 people that have legitimate, you know, responsibilities and that feel really good to me. I think having a circle for passive contributors to come in and contribute makes a lot of sense. But being able to assign key ownership roles to five to 10 people and feeling confident they can always report back to a wider structure has been what I've seen work well. You know, um, I'll call out that there's no one size fits all DAO model. You know, I'm in one DAO called Fires where it's four of us and we are very intentional about not opening that up. We want to keep that at four members. You know, I'm in another DAO called Friends with Benefits that has 1,500 members and counting. And both of those are working extremely well. You know, on Monday, we had a town hall where 270 people came together. We had about 10 of our 80 contributors come to the call and discuss what they're working on. And what I'd call out here is that while there were, you know, 50 to 80 people in the DAO that are doing work on a day-to-day basis, the fact that those 1,000 members can come and hear about that and feel a sense of ownership on what they're working on, they then feel more inclined to take that next step and get involved. And so the thing that I'm spending a lot of my time on is It's very clear to me people really want to work for a DAO. There's a lot of people that have a lot of skills to offer and they want to get involved. But right now, we just don't have good onboarding funnels. And so organizational structure of DAOs to be able to identify you're really good at something. I'm going to put you into a team to work on that. I think that's the single biggest hurdle we need to make DAOs more scalable. And that's something that I'm spending a lot of my time on to figure out.
0: Onboarding talent specifically, you're talking about, Cooper. Correct. Mm
1: Cooper, you you earlier said that you are largely a part of like social DAOs, and so I want to ask this question to you. Uh, there could I could I think I could argue pretty effectively that it was it uh, the goal of all DAOs collapses down in, into increasing capital, and that's extremely obvious when it comes to uh, uh, DAOs like Yearn, which is trying to you know. Put a bunch of you know YFI and ETH on the treasury, or or DAOs like Uniswap, which is trying to take uh, trading fees, and they all have their own tokens, and they want token price to go up. Do you agree that the goal of all DAOs is to increase its capital? And I also want to put into uh, into your your brain, uh, our episode with uh, Joel Monegro really opened up the definition of what capital really is. It's not just you know the financial capital that's on on the balance sheet, but it's perhaps the social capital and human capital, which maybe that maybe that fits into the social DAO conversation. But in your opinion, uh, what is like the end game for DAOs? What is the goal for all DAOs?
4: Yeah, I would definitely uh, double click on the fact that capital is both financial and social. I think increasing relevance in the world is extremely important. And so when I think about, you know, what is the purpose of these social DAOs? Um, how do you value culture? You know, this is a question that I ask a lot. I think in crypto so far, we've been able to value financial assets, which has been fantastic. But now that you're seeing a lot more interest in sort of meme and speculative investing, what does it mean to place a price tag on a community ethos or to place a price tag on a fashion brand or something like that? And so um, I think it's a new asset class fundamentally. But to answer your question directly, I would say the mission for all DAOs is to increase relevancy and mindshare in the world. And whatever you define as capital to be able to, to define that, that's kind of what a DAO looks like to me. Trake
1: with the goal of Yearn, is the end game simply just to collect as much fees as possible and have the DAO be as well capitalized as possible? Or is that overly reductive?
3: Yeah, I think it's, that's one of the goals. But the goal is also to just continue to find new ways to innovate, to create, to work together, to improve the space. Um, yield aggregation is the thing that we're focused on now, but that could change. Who knows?
1: Kane, same question to you. I think,
3: you know, again,
2: it comes down to purpose, right? Like the purpose of synthetics is absolutely to, uh, you know, expand uh, the market cap of synthetic assets because that's the utility that, that's the service that we're all coming together to coordinate, to provide. Um, But, you know, as I kind of alluded to, it may be that in chasing that purpose or, or chasing that goal, we end up developing something that's far more powerful, which is, you know, these decentralized governance tools, right? So I think that there are positive externalities For DAOs, because they operate in the open they're transparent all the software is open source or should be if it's not you need to take a look at yourself not naming any names but um you know i think that uh that they're they're you know creating public goods in, in a sense right um you know when you're when you're building this tooling um and so yes like in a very narrowly defined sense, like synthetics is about expanding the capital, um, you know, the, the assets and the management, um, and the market cap. Uh, but I think that that can throw off some, some positive things that are outside the scope of just capital accrual.
0: Guys, this is a hot panel. We've still got some more things to cover, including, uh, Vitalik says coin voting sucks in his recent article. I wanna get into that topic. Also talk about opportunities. So the average listener who's not yet joined a DAO wants to be more active in DAOs. How do they get involved? What are the opportunities in this space? Uh, But before we get to those questions we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible.
1: When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on matcha is super easy because it pools the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform and that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on-chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp. You can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and make an overall better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to the Arbitrum Layer 2. To keep up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord.
0: Hey guys, we are back. Fantastic panel so far. We've got a few more topics to cover. We've got Kane, we've got Cooper, we've got Trake. Uh, illuminating us on the world of DAOs, how to DAO. I, I want to get to an article that Vitalik published uh, actually earlier this week, and Kane, you made reference to it earlier. this this idea of uh, DGov being really important. Let's figure out decentralized governance. Maybe that is what the biggest thing that crypto is actually doing. Maybe that's even bigger than going bankless and bigger than DeFi. I don't know. Um, but one of the uh, the points he made was is kind of like coin voting sucks, right? Like we can do better than simple coin votes in how we govern uh, our DeFi protocols and govern our DAOs. Uh, I'm, I'm going to throw out something from his uh, summary here. Coin voting is attractive because it feels credibly neutral. Anyone can go and get some units of governance token on Uniswap. In practice, however, coin voting may well only appear secure today precisely because of the imperfections in its neutrality. Namely, this is an important part, large portions of the supply staying in the hands of a tightly coordinated clique of insiders. So I want to ask you, does coin voting suck? And if so, what's better? Where can we evolve to? Kane? what's your take?
2: I mean, I, you know, Maker, aside from being an incredible uh, solution to, uh, to the stablecoin problem, was also kind of a natural experiment in proving that coin voting sucks. Like, I think pretty definitively put the nail in that coffin that like direct coin voting has so many negative uh, aspects to it, including like chilling effects of, you know, lack of participation, uh, lack of engagement, all kinds of things. Right. So I, I'm 100% in agreement with uh, Vitalik that the direct coin voting on uh, on kind of individual proposals um, is really suboptimal. Um, the the thing that we this view that we had, I guess, in synthetics was like, um, how do we maintain rough consensus? while overlaying some control for token holders, right? Like how do you balance those two things? And so in the early days, it was like just discord, right? You had a personality in discord. You could be a non-whatever. And that was the kind of, you know, one person, one vote, rough consensus um, about, you know, specific proposals. Um, And then I think that uh, over time, it evolved into a coin voting system, but that coin voting system was sort of established in such a way as to ensure that it wasn't, one coin, one vote. It was sort of, uh, you know, we applied like quadratic weighting to to voting. You can only vote for one council member. So you can't, you know, run, uh, run the table and get all the council members on there. So there were a number of things that we did to kind of uh, constrain the direct coin voting um, and, and create something that was more uh, robust. So, you know, there's still a lot of experiments in, in that direction, I think, um, around delegation and representative democracy, but in my mind, that's kind of a hybrid thing. Cause I still think you need some control for token holders. You don't want to divorce, you know, the, the tokens from governance. Um, but you also don't want to have it so coupled to, you know, so tightly coupled that you get the, you know, all of the issues that we've seen with maker and some of the other, uh, direct token
0: voting systems. Jake, what's your take on this? the, the suckiness of, of coin voting. And is there something less sucky?
3: The suckiness is, uh, enormous of coin voting. And I, (laughs) um, you know, I mean, there's so, there's so much, this question, I love Vitalik's article, um, agree with it very much. Um, you know, you need, uh, I don't even know where to start. Uh, The, you know, urine has developed a whole system of, of, of governance in order to do both, listen to Wi-Fi holders and allow for people to make independent, autonomous decisions without having to go for you know, to to whip votes for every new decision, which is just a nightmare. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things that happens, I think, in crypto is we get so obsessed with adversarial environments and, and blockchain, and we think that everything's supposed to work that way, but that doesn't make any sense. You know, like there is a role for trust. What A world with no trust in it is not one I want to be in, you know, but the beautiful thing is that because blockchain creates this incredibly strong trustless foundation, you see so much more trust flourishing on top of it. Um, And it's not about just open trust, do whatever. It's about being thoughtful with how you create structures and how you bestow trust and making it transparent so that, you know, one of the nice things about trust is that it can be broken. And it can teach you how to make new systems to avoid that happening in the future, and to get stronger, uh, and to share things in a better way. And so we develop all of these tools. Like you in governance too. You know, it's, we've been having this awesome collaboration with Synthetics recently, looking at our two sides of different ways of governance, which both have solved similar problems in different ways. Neither of us have done direct on-chain voting uh, for you know direct control of treasury or, or contracts. You know, for good reason, it can be just like Vitalik lays out. There's a lot of ways it can go wrong. Cooper, what do you think about this coin voting?
4: You know, um, I struggle with this topic a lot. I think when you take a step back, governance is such a small, small problem for so many people in the space right now, and more broadly the world. You know, I think for a lot of people, the idea of using any asset to vote on something that you have a role in is a very new topic. You know, for the vast majority of people in this world, they've never participated in a governance decision. Most likely, they never will. And so I think that this article highlights a lot of really accurate points for like deep crypto governance systems today. But where I get caught up with it is um, recognizing that we're not in a place yet where we've gotten to a large enough scale for these experiments to play out in like a really meaningful manner. And so to me, what stood out from that article was just sort of the emphasis on quadratic voting. You know, I think that Kane touched on this as well, but we're slowly shifting into a world where it appears that, you know, the amount of individuals voting on something is the larger signal than the people with the most capital voting on that. And so I think that trying to run more experiments in that direction where you're encouraging participation, you know, you're allocating capital to governance and you're trying to make sure that people recognize this is something to pay attention to. I think we can get to a place where once we have more diverse opinions in the conversation, we can start to see more meaningful conversations around this. But right now, I think that for the most part, it's the same hundred token holders voting on every protocol. And I think to me, that's a very small subset to make definitive, you know, decisions about whether or not systems are broken, when in reality, we're still so early in the conversation of what global governance would look like.
0: I think that's a really good point. And uh, while I, I also agree with the Vitalik's article, Coin Voting Sucks, I think it's also important to like take a step back and, and look at um, all of our existing legacy s- systems suck more, right? Like, When's the last time you or any users had any influence in what Twitter does? or Uber drivers, they have any influence in their network, right? So like even the, the basic zero to one of now users in the community, to your point earlier, Cooper, have a vested interest in this network. That is a big step forward. So yeah, coin voting still sucks and we can drive towards better solutions. But like everything in the old world sucks way more. Like I want a piece of every network I am a part of as a user in this world. This is what crypto has taught me.
4: Yeah, maybe just i think oh, sorry. Go
0: ahead. yeah sorry
4: I, I think like vitalik's
2: counter argument to that if i could be so bold to speak for him uh <laughs> would be that like you can have ownership of a thing without you know resorting to like direct token voting right like those things don't need to be coupled um and yes like the ownership component is far more powerful um of, of a thing than the existing systems um but you can, ha- you can have an ownership component with no governance rights, right? And, and you know, that would still be better than, you know, the, the status quo um, because you don't have governance right now, go- governance rights or, um, you know, or uh, a stakehold, uh, you know, in, in, the, um, in these systems like Uber or whatever. Um, so I think that, the, like, we should be careful not to couple those things too tightly.
0: Good point. Cooper, you have anything to add there before we go on?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that Kane's exactly accurate there. I think the uh, education around why governance matters is something that I care very deeply about. You know, I don't think that a lot of people understand that if they take the time to learn about governance, there's financial freedom at stake, there's social freedom at stake. You know, I think for a lot of people, when we hear governance, we think about electing the next president, which is a conversation that has not been naturally very exciting to them. But what I've found a lot of purpose in, in crypto is being able to use governance as a means to work on what I love. And so, you know, outside of the mechanics for how governance is used, I think that being able to educate people that By participating in the deepest nuance of the networks that you know and love, you can work on literally whatever you want in the world. And I think as we get to a point of figuring out what that looks like, you know, the mechanics for how we do governance will get more defined. You know, as that kind of opportunity gap closes and everyone recognizes if I spend 10 hours a week on a governance forum, chances are I'm going to make more money than any salary could ever pay me in my life.
1: Guys, so far, this conversation has really been about DAOs holistically. So I want to actually turn the conversation to individuals who make up these DAOs and how a DAO lifestyle is different than the lifestyles that you know, we would find ourselves in a, a typical legacy job. Uh, and so Cooper, as somebody who's part of all these social DAOs, how does, wh- what does a, a DAO lifestyle mean to you? What does it mean to work for a DAO? And how does that change how
4: an individual
1: can live their life? And how do you explain it to your parents?
4: (laughs) (laughs) The great question. Uh, The way I live my life now is ownership stakes and all of the projects that I contribute to. So I'm slowly supplementing any form of consistent income on a fiat basis to just ownership stakes and networks. And I think that principle of going into a community and being able to earn a significant ownership portion for the value you contribute, it's extremely scary. You know, to my parents, then me telling them, Hey, I'm not going to take, um, USD per month to pay my rent. I'm going to earn magic internet tokens. They're going to be worth more. You know, for the last three years, they were like, what the hell are you doing? But, you know, as this started to pan out more and we saw specifically this last year, those ownership stakes become valuable. I think that it's easy to recognize if you go into a network and you start working for ownership over capital, there's going to be a path forward there. I think to answer that question very directly of how I spend my time, it's a connector role. You know, I think that the single most important thing to do for DAOs is putting people into the right pockets together and then helping to coordinate that effort. And so a lot of my time is basically identifying who are the key contributors in that DAO, how do I make sure that they're actually owning things that matter? And how do I make sure they're touching base with all the other people that know what matters so that the ball is moving forward and they're communicating that to every other member of that DAO.
1: Trey, can you kind of compare and contrast what your life was like before you started working at Urn and, and how uh, just the lifestyle of working inside of a DAO has has changed
3: how you live your life? Well, I was writing a science fiction novel before I started working at Urn, so it's pretty different. Um, <laughs> but before that, I ran a company, you know, and um it's super different um, in so many ways. Like one of the things that I'm most passionate about with with working in DAOs is is creating, I call it like the party bike, you know, a system where on a party bike, anybody can pedal as much as they want. You know, somebody wants to steer, they can, they can drive. And like, you want to stop pedaling and just chill and drink your beer, that's fine. Like Dows can be the system that harvest all the action from all of the contributors in any way that they want to contribute it which really supports this kind of self-sovereign individual responsibility of what is it that I care about? What do I want to work on? I am not going to sign my life away as a wage slave for X number of hours. Any hour of my time is worth more than, than money, you know? But if I just do those things that I'm called to, money flows through the magic of DAOs and through the magic of crypto, just like Cooper was saying. Like I just, when I started at Yearn, I didn't know, I like wasn't involved that much in crypto until last summer. And I just showed up at your and I was like, holy shit, DAOs are incredible. I'm just, there's, nobody's in charge here. I'm just gonna make the role that I want to do and I'm gonna do that. And it has, I mean, extraordinarily beneficial in my life. And it was wonderful. What is that role by the way, Drake? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I work <laughs> on, on governance and compensation and organization stuff. Yeah, that's my It's
1: stuff, Ryan. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> so fun
1: fact: uh, Kane also was working on a, a book before he came to Synthetics. If you guys didn't didn't know that, but Kane, you've been a, a serial entrepreneur, uh, dare I say, workaholic for 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 like years now. So, as somebody who's had a, a, a perspective on uh, the the laborers inside of Synthetics, as well as yourself. How, what is like what is work like inside of synthetics and and how do you see that as a model for DAOs at large?
4: Yeah, so it, we had
1: a
2: really interesting contrast, right? Because Blue Shift, the, the company that I founded before Synthetics, which was this payment gateway that a bunch of the crypto exchanges in Australia used uh, to, you know, get around banks um, because. Banks didn't like crypto uh, back then. They still kind of don't. They're a little bit more open to it. Um, so we, in our office, synthetics kind of grew, um, you know, out of the Blue Shift office, right? There it was, you know, there were kind of similar people working on it, and so you had this very like. Rigid corporate hierarchical structure with like investors and uh, you know a CEO and like all these different things, and then you had this like crazy thing over you know in the other side of the office, right? Um, which was a very flat structure even from the beginning. Um, but I think the the primary difference when we transitioned from uh, foundation to DAO is we went from a model where people had to do what I said. Right. Like they were actually obligated to do what I said. Right. And, you know, I like to think that I was pretty open about, you know, collaborating with people, and listening to them, and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is that if I said you have to do this, like you had to do it. Right. Um, and then we went to this model where that didn't exist anymore and you didn't have to do anything that I said. Right. You didn't know the fuck you wanted. And so now we've got, you know, all of these different stakeholders uh, in the project and people just do. Whatever they think, like trick was saying, you know, they make their own roles, they carve out you know, positions for themselves, et cetera. Um, and it's a very different working environment. It's much more open and I would argue a lot more fun. Um, it's a bit more chaotic, but it's it's more fun than a, a rigid hierarchy.
1: trick I wanna ask this next question to you. Uh, DAOs, we've seen, are a lot looser in their borders, right? If you're a part of a DAO, you can freely become part of another DAO, and there's no jealousy, there's no employment contract like there are with with legacy companies. And that's kind of opened up the design space for the products that DAOs can build. And so now that members can be a part of multiple DAOs, and DAOs can less more, more freely collaborate with other DAOs, what kind of things can we unlock with DAO to DAO collaboration? Uh, Now that there's less of a competitive environment and more of a collaborative environment with DAOs, what can we do now?
3: Yeah, it's a really cool concept really. And like the thought experiment, like what if like one third of Apple employees also worked at Microsoft, you know, like what, or if that (laughs) was the dominant paradigm for, you know, the Fang cadre, I think so much. And I think in order to get there, I mean, we can do so much in terms of just collaboration and really shifting what is the purpose of what we're doing. Is the purpose to create these gigantic, uh, immortal uh, company entities that extract resources and turn it into work product? You know, is that the purpose of what we're doing here? No, you know, so does it like, we have all these trappings from the past like this corporate veil and legal boundaries and oh i've got this salary and this compensation and i've got this lock in investing all this stuff and we import all this stuff into crypto just cuz you know we haven't invented anything better yet in a lot of ways but a lot of what i'm working on is like better ways to do compensation so you don't even need to worry what other projects you're working on who cares if you're moonlighting or if you're Uh, working on another project if you're bringing value to a project it should be rewarded so we need more fluid systems for enabling that type of um, you know contribution.
1: Cooper since you're a part of so many social DAOs do you notice a lot of the same members in one DAO being a part of another DAO and how does that change the dynamics of all the different DAOs you're a part of?
4: I think it just encourages positive some games. You know, we see a lot of the core contributors to social clubs leaning into every community that they're in. They'll do recurring panels in one DAO, they'll host workshops in another one. And you start to see that the camaraderie in that sector is a lot stronger because people are sharing everything together. You know, to Kane's earlier point about open sourcing valuable tooling, I've been recommending so many people use their vesting contracts, the liquidity mining contracts they made have been, you know, the market standard. And I think in the next three to six months here, we're going to see those same level of open source tooling for more social applications. So things like coordinate, I think are a fantastic example around getting paid. Um, We're now seeing stuff around like tokenized membership events. So for FWV, we've built like a gatekeeper product that allows you to go to IRL events using an RSVP system. You know, so something that we're now gonna open up and allow other communities to use. And I believe over the next like year or so here, we're gonna see both like financial products that are shared between communities and more important, you know, social coordination mechanisms. So that if you have a group of 20 people on the internet how do you assign identity and reputation and the more we can figure out systems on that front, I think the more we're going to win together
0: as a whole. Cooper, just a quick follow-up on this. Like it, at some level, I used to say this in the early days of DeFi that it feels like we're, we're beta testing. We're all beta testers in the fe- the world's future financial system, right? It still feels that way. But like, I also feel that way with with DAOs, right? You're talking about like uh, all of these ways to participate in community. Well, like what has community? Just about everything, like everything, like you talk about artists. You talk about like you know fan clubs. You talk about like the video gaming market. These are all little pockets of a community. It feels very much like crypto is just alpha beta testing. All of this infrastructure that the rest of the world is about to use. Any reflections on that? On how big this could get?
4: Yeah, the biggest mental model I've been following for DAO specifically is community meets product, not product meets community. You know, in the world previously, teams would build a product and try and find users to go out and adopt it. With DAOs, you are building a community and that community is deciding what to build together. And even if it's the shittiest product in the world, they're all gonna go out and go to bat for it because they built it together. And I think that precedent of only building things because a community thinks it's valuable actually helps us to identify what should be built and reduces a lot of the friction around things that don't really matter.
1: Kane, as the, uh, again, the prefrontal cortex of, of synthetics, uh, with, which is a very goal-oriented uh project. It has very explicit outcomes that it, that it wants. Would you ever notice the people, the contributors of the synthetics ecosystem, have their attention drift elsewhere to other projects? And how was that ever a problem, or was uh, that kind of cool?
2: <laughs> um, you may recall DeFi Summer.
1: Um, and, and real <laughs> that was very craze.
2: distracting, sir. It was <laughs> it felt very distracted. distracting. Oh my god. Uh, but you know what? Like and, and this is where I think the difference between um you know go back to like you know my my former life as the CEO of Blue Shift versus you know the founder of Synthetics uh it was it would not have been acceptable for all of the staff of Blue Shift to just like run down the street chasing after some fucking crazy thing. Right. Like that just was not like that wouldn't happen. It couldn't happen. Right. Like there's a lot of oversight around what people are doing. They're very defined roles. Um, you had, you know, people within the synthetics community, like helping out to launch new, uh, projects. They were like, you know, helping out with community, um, helping out with coordination. They were just yield farming themselves. They were degenning. They were, you know, doing all kinds of crazy shit. They were, you know, doing code reviews for people, um, audits, like. And there was no real way to kind of constrain that. And there was at, at one point, I think there was a little bit of concern um, within the project of like everyone is very distracted. And I just sort of said like, this is the process, right? Like, you know everything that everyone's doing people are going to learn from um, and you know it's going to come back and it's going to you know populate uh, the the project with a whole bunch of you know good and bad information that people have gathered out in, in the outside world and that's just the way it goes right um so you know we we took a very kind of uh you know um, uh, I guess uh open view of you know letting people do whatever they wanted and um, you know and now with the with current, Kind of structure. What we're trying to work out is how do we have some uh, level of coordination within the core contributors, right? We're paid; they're paid to start from monthly to work on specific things to make sure that the outcomes that we're looking for, um, you know, from those people are kind of met. Um, but it's a hard problem, right? Like when you start from a very open kind of framework, it, it's hard to apply retrospectively, um, you know, some rigidity to it. So we'll see how that goes, but it's definitely an experiment's running right now.
0: It's super interesting because you definitely want accountability, but you also in the Dow world have such loose ties on talent, but, you know, I I think that can actually be an advantage for crypto in that, like, Hey, talent's not going to want to work for handcuffs anymore. Like your Google, your Silicon Valley, non-compete clause, like forget that. Right? Doesn't exist in crypto. So I do think this is going to be a boon for for bringing talent in this space. This new way of working is going to catch on. I want to ask another question to the panelists. Um, David and I have had a reoccurring discussion, right? So this term is DAO that we've been seeing the entire time, decentralized autonomous organization, DAO, right? Um, The A in that sometimes I find a little bit um, not troubling, not that there's intentional deceit, but like doesn't necessarily reflect the meme of DAO, right? Because a lot of what we're talking about is not autonomous. By autonomous, we just mean like written in code, right? Ideally, immutable code on something like Ethereum, for instance. Um, do you think that these are really do's, digital organizations, instead of DAOs that we've been talking about this whole time? And um, how do you square that in your mind? Is the meme sort of wrong? Kane, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. So, you know, my, my sense of autonomous even if it wasn't the original intent and and I think it kind of wasn't like again if you go back to the DAO right the idea was that it was this you know set of uh you know contracts running on Ethereum that um you know didn't require any intervention right but again I think what is that intervention because it still required humans right humans were an input to the process of the DAO right so it had to compel humans to want to do something right which was like put up proposals to be funded etc right so it was never like autonomous to like the human species right it was never just a piece of software that was going off and doing something that never interacted with humans right humans were an input to the process um, but i think for me the autonomous component as we've kind of iterated on this this concept is more about being uh you know self-contained right it doesn't it doesn't require like the, the humans that are an input to the process are within the DAO, if that makes sense, right? Um, and it doesn't, the rules are self-contained um, and and coherent, and it doesn't require uh, sort of resorting to some external arbiter of, uh, of you know, um, like a legal system or something like that, right? Everything that is done within the DAO happens within the rule set that's created within the DAO. Um, and that rule set can obviously change, right? You know, there's, there's DAOs that evolve and, and the rules change, um, but even the changing of the rules is encoded in the DAO itself, right? So, you know, the, there's this evolutionary concept, but, um, but still there is this sense that they're distinct um, and self-contained. And, and that's where the autonomous for me really resonates.
0: Trake, what do you think about this? Weigh in for us.
3: Yeah, that's an awesome explanation. And yeah, I like to think about the autonomous part as kind of recursive or um, which is that the whole object is uh, autonomous. And then DAO is really this kind of soup of human and software objects all functioning autonomously. And the people inside the DAO are also autonomous. And I think it really brings it back to that core crypto a value of sovereignty, self-sovereignty. And it's like, I am responsible for my actions uh, with the other people I work with. And together we are responsible for our actions. We are autonomous.
0: Cooper, I, I, I love that description that Trey just made of this the software and human soup. Uh, that's really what it feels like. It's being in like a, a stew with other human beings intermixed with code. Do you have any thoughts on this question of how autonomous are DAOs or should we even care?
4: Yeah, I think um, to echo some of the earlier comments, when I think of the word autonomous, I think about independence. You know, we've heard multiple panelists say that many contributors in DAOs are self-defining their own role. They're self defining their own responsibilities. They're leaning into something that feels very empowering to them. And so when I think of autonomous, I think less about, will this thing work in the absence of humans? I think more about, will this thing work with people feeling fulfilled from the work that they do in that DAO organization? And so when you start to look around at all these DAOs and sort of judge the mental health of the people working on them, I think you're going to find that it's much more autonomous and sort of how those people are living their day-to-day life. And in aggregate, I think that that energy just brings about such a new level of productivity that, you know, I could care less, honestly, if it's being run by software or humans, but so long as there's sort of a collective consciousness that's pushing it forward in a meaningful way, I think that's the degree of autonomy that I measure.
1: I think the original definition of DAOs really focused on the humans on the periphery and code at the center definition of DAOs where we, and this was these very pie in the sky ideas of like Uber and Airbnb on the blockchain and Uber, instead of being like a, a bunch of bureaucrats uh, with a bunch of you know people in the middle uh, with the with the value creators on the outside, we could just replace the inside with code and the value creators would just talk to this like robotic, like hive mind Uber app that was somehow a bunch of contracts on Ethereum and there would be actually no internal human organizations. And I think the way we've gone from that OG version of DAOs, which we actually have never actually seen before, uh, to where we are now, which is kind of how everything is is a DAO, the way that 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 definition really changed is the A started to be inclusive of human incentives. And so now we are just making big assumptions that humans are going to act rationally. And basically our entire industry is based on that assumption, that human incentives are now going to make this thing take the next step forward. Uh, and so that's really where we regain uh, control and, and appropriateness over that word autonomous in digital organizations. Just wanted to add a, a few sense of my so own David, thoughts are,
0: there. So David, are you saying uh, you're okay with it being called DAOs now? That's what I heard you say. Well, it
1: was. It, it's not like <laughs> we're ever going to be able to change that. I do no, think the more appropriate aren't. name is Deuce, but did, for digital organizations, but it's, it, that
0: ship has absolutely sailed. Yeah, remember we tried to open finance rather than DeFi? Yeah, no, no we got slaughtered I remember. on that effort. Don't worry. I remember <laughs> it very well. Came. I we won't
1: <laughs> Guys, I want to turn to the last few questions that we have in this panel, and this panel has been absolutely mind-blowing. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it myself. Uh, And on the Bankless program, we are obsessed with the concept of slaying Moloch. He is uh, the god of coordination failure, and we want him to retreat forever and ever and ever. And that is kind of the the through line that we think this crypto industry can really help us achieve in this world. And so from from your perspective, how do DAOs fit into this conversation? How can DAOs help slay Moloch? Uh, Cooper, let's start with you.
4: I mean, in short, I think that um, communities have never had the opportunity to share financial and social capital together. So when you think about the way that you spend your time online, it's not about going and working nine to five to spend your time on the weekends doing what you love. I think DAOs are the means in which we can work on the things we love and get paid for that. And so as far as it relates to Moloch and sort of slang coordination failure, I think when you start to shift focus away from financial capital as ends meet to instead like financial capital as a means to work with your peers in a more productive manner. I think DAOs are the single most important way that we can get to a place that feels really positive in that conversation. Trick, same question to you. How can DAOs help slay Moloch?
3: Well, I think every different shape of organization has a different cognitive capacity, basically. And what a child is capable of doing or solving is far different from what an adult can do. And the organiz- the best level of organizational technology we've had in the past, these corporations are kind of like, rusty machines compared to DAOs, which can be like nature and if you look at what nature can do it can it can grow a grasshopper from dirt you know like yeah we can make a boeing 747 but there are classes of problems on this planet that we are so far from solving that DAOs will be able to unlock for us
1: kane why don't you take us home on this one how can DAOs slay moloch
2: so one of my favorite books of all time is inadequate equilibria by eliza Um and i think when I was reading it, it was it was like 2017, 2018, something like that. Um, and to me, it was almost like a, a roadmap of like every problem that uh, like better incentive uh, mechanisms and, and coordination games could solve, right? Like, you know, the, the book goes through like 10 different things, right? That like are just uh, kind of equilibria that exists in the world that, um, you know, are kind of hard to break right um there's a bunch of examples like uh you know um, replication studies in, in uh you know academic literature um the fact that like no one's incentivized to do that you just want to you know publish novel results and it doesn't matter and i think that um a lot of the reason for these things is corporations right like corporations have captured academic literature, right? Like there's, you know, huge corporations that are, uh, you know, responsible for publishing certain journals. They want, um, you know, the eye-popping headline things, right? It's a little bit like, you know, uh, media as well, right? Um, You know, they don't, there's no, there's no money in replication studies, even though that's what we need to actually kind of get science done. Um, And so when I look at something like a DAO to, Uh, solve this this problem of like academic literature coordination it's obvious that that as a coordination mechanism could solve it Um, unfortunately I don't have the time to do it but I hope that someone somewhere you know gets this idea and kind of runs with it because um, you know it's it's a really hard thing to kind of publish and distribute um, academic research right and and peer review and and do all that stuff it takes a lot of resources and you know to Trey's point like corporations were the only ones that could uh, kind of accumulate enough resources to do something like that on a global scale. And now we have DAOs, right? Like maybe governments maybe were like the alternative, but governments are pretty slow and shitty uh, and corporations kind of ran rings around them for a long time. But now we have these DAOs that have the ability to accumulate the resources to actually do things on a global scale um, and, you know, can basically reset incentives and create new, economic incentives and, and set up new coordination games that can uh, really shift the equilibria, um, you know, on, on a number of these problems.
0: That's super cool framing government, slow and shitty corporations, a little bit faster. DAOs order of magnitude faster than that, maybe able to tackle a new class of problems. Super cool. That book was called inadequate equilibria. If you missed it, as, as Kane mentioned, adding it to my reading list, maybe go join a, uh, a reading club DAO. And uh, get more um, more of those recommendations, guys. This has been a fantastic panel, um, and I want to end with this question. So we're just talking super big picture, right? Like pie in the sky. Like how how is this going to this social technology going to change the face of of te- of, of humanity? How's it going to make the world better? Um, I want to zone in on on you guys individually, right? So um, t- tell us about kind of your uh, your DAO story. How have DAOs changed your life, and uh, in what ways? Cooper, let's start with you.
4: I mean, I can confidently say DAOs are the single only reason that I have the name I do in crypto right now. You know, my entire trajectory in the space is owed to DAOs, you know, starting out from Moloch DAO um, and Metacartel, working my way in for shares, for writing articles, to then getting involved with DeFi DAOs, to now more of these social clubs. If DAOs were not a thing, I simply wouldn't be here today. And so I think for anyone out there that's looking to get involved, I'm not a developer by trade. I have absolutely zero technical skills. But the fact I've been able to build a career on the back of this cool new internet technology solely thanks to DAOs. I think it's an incredibly powerful precedent that if you go out of your way to find people to work with online, you know, there are going to be financial opportunities greater than anything you could have ever imagined.
0: 21st century upward mobility. Cooper, do you mind if I ask how old you are for some of the folks listening? You're like in your, in your shoes.
4: Yeah. I just turned 26 in June.
0: Crazy guys. Crazy. Kane, how about you? How have Dow's changed your life?
2: I think, you know, as someone who's done a lot of startups um, and as someone who has, uh, you know, tried to tackle some pretty hard problems and, and failed to do so. Uh, the ability to uh, kind of coordinate people, coordinate capital uh, and, and work on really hard problems uh, is, you know, I think something that just wasn't really contemplated in, in like the startup world, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, there was this idea you had to go to VCs. Um, What VCs would fund is a bunch of old white guys on Sand Hill Road, right? Like the the solution space of of problems that they were willing to tackle is very, very narrow, um, as much as they would like to think uh, that's not the case. And I think that DAOs um, and, you know, crypto capital formation and DAO capital formation just opens up a world of different problems that, uh, that can be tackled um, you know, and it's incredible. And I'm I'm obviously super excited to be involved in that.
0: Drake, how about you? how have DAOs changed your life?
3: Well, you know, yeah, I mean, I worked really, really hard for many years, starting companies, running companies, doing project work for clients, and it burned me out hard. You know, I tried to, I tried to, bring in a lot of these new ideas into those old companies like teal organizations and tried holacracy and things like that and worked okay. But, you know, I ended up like, you know, selling my last company a few years ago. And I was like, you know, I am I just spent time, like a year just healing, you know, I was like, from all that work, I didn't really expect that I'd come back in anything like this. And, um, you know, when I found DAOs though, it was like, there's a few times in life where you're like, wow, this is like the combination of all the things that I'm excited about. And I actually have the skills that I can really help this space. And so it's, it's yeah, it's brought me back into this kind of, um, you know, creating impact in the world. And another way it's changed my life is it really challenges me personally. You know, it makes me question a lot of my assumptions about myself, a lot of my psychological hangups, you know, because when you're in this space of like infinite possibility, um, you really have this chance to question what the fuck you're really doing. You know, and that's a beautiful question to ask. What do you really want? And DAOs helped me ask that.
0: Super cool guys. I think there are hundreds of stories like this, maybe thousands of stories, but they're, they're about to be hundreds of thousands of stories, maybe millions. Dow's are really going to change, uh, the face of how we organize collectively, how we do work in the future. Like so many things, uh, like I always, I always think about this when we have a really insightful panel or bankless episode, it's just like, you look at the world and the world sucks. Like, it sucks sometimes, but crypto is something that gives each of us hope, right? Like, I am optimistic because of crypto, um, and it's super exciting to see these new social technologies emerge in this way and uh, the spirit of optimism. And guys, thank you for making us even more optimistic on DAOs, panelists, Kane, Cooper, Trake. You guys have been phenomenal. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you,
4: fun. guys. It's good Appreciate fun. it, everyone.
0: Guys, if you're hanging on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe. David, I fit this one in. Like and subscribe. Again, uh, David's nodding his head. Happy about that. Risks and disclaimers, of course, DAOs are risky. ETH is risky. Bitcoin is. So is crypto. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.